Snap Studios. Backstage, it's the hometown crowd. Now the band Bells Atlas, I see them taking the stage. They're from here too. It's about to be fire, no fear. Snap Judgment, live at the Paramount. Listener discretion is advised. So, I'm 16 years old, and I'm standing at the edge of the Niagara Falls, hoping this roar of water will drown out my father's lecture. But Pops is in rare form. Boy, you're hard-headed. You gotta learn from God's authority. So we're at this church festival, and he knows as well as I do that they, they're not enough deacons and apostles and ministers to watch all of these young people. They can't do it. He knows this. Boy, you listen to me? Yes, sir. Don't be talking to none of them girls, neither. What do you think I'm there for? I got my target locked. Becca. Fine! She's from upstate New York. I say, hey, Becca, let me show you around. Knowing good and well, I've never been there before. Take it to get some of that Niagara Falls fudge. We go to the Ripley's, believe it or not. And it's in front of the wax museum, Waxy Dolly Parton, that I reach out my hand and she holds it, squeezes it. And I know the good Lord loves me. And I don't even like haunted houses, but we're going to the haunted house because I just want to hold her hand. And it's right past the, the Frankenstein's monster, past the dark bin, but she tells me that she wants to tell me a secret. I've been down and we kissed for like 30 seconds or two hours. And I don't know, but walk out into the sunshine and see her mother and she's screaming and shouting there's spittle coming out of her mouth she says that I'm a seducer that I'm evil that it's evil for one race to fraternize with another this is an outrage and she grabs Becca's hand shoves her into a car and they pull off because yeah there's a rule against that in my church and I'm invisible no more. Everybody's on the street. You should have seen what happened. You should have seen it. You should have seen it. The next day, I'm sitting in my parents' station wagon, and a girl who is not Becca comes and gives me a note. You know who this is from. She walks away. And I smell it, and it smells like she does. And I, I can't open it. I can't open it. I open it, and in this flowing cursive script, she said everything that I want to hear, that she's so sorry for what happened, but that we're almost old enough to do whatever we want to do, that we don't have to follow anybody's rules that we can write to each other, we can keep in touch, and we can be together forever. She asked me to write every day, and I do. For a while, then I write every week, then every month. And one evening, I get a phone call, and it's her, it's Becca, and she sounds small and she sounds scared and she says that she just can't take it anymore that it's just too much that she has to get away and she says uh, 
can I come stay with you? And having her at our house is against the imagining of my community. No way is this going to happen. But I have to help her. Hold on for a minute. And I start this long march upstairs to my parents' room knowing that any moment this volcano is about to blow. I knock on the door. My father is sitting there at his desk reading the Bible. I decide to just say it. Pops, I have a girlfriend on the other side of the country. She's in some trouble. She wants to come here. She might be in a church. I think she's white. Is that all right? Where is she? She's in Buffalo, the Greyhound station. He reaches over and hands me his wallet. My credit card's in there. Get a ticket here. And I wonder who this person is. Anything else? No, get out. Yes, sir. <laughs> and a day later, I pull our freshly washed station wagon up to the Greyhound station. And I see the bus pull in, and she's, she looks tired until we lock eyes. And she looks beautiful again. And she rushes out, and she gives me a huge hug, and she says, I knew it. I knew we were always going to be together. I knew it. I get her luggage, and she says, you might be in some trouble. Word? Yeah. Um, my mother found some of our letters. Uh-huh. She told the cops that I'd been kidnapped by Negroes. She didn't say Negroes. And we laughed even though it's not funny. And then I take her back to our place and she meets my mother, my brother, my father. My sister says, oh, you're so pretty. And I can see her relax when she says it. But she hasn't relaxed in a long, long time. And I just want to keep her safe. And we're eating dinner as a family and there's a knock on the door. My father gets up to get it. It's our pastor, he's tying his tie. He's slicking back his kind of blonde, grayish hair. Bill, Bill, I understand we got a problem here. We got a big problem, I just wanna make sure you're gonna be in the church tomorrow. We all gonna be up in the church. And the next day we all are. Dead center. Me in the middle with Becca next to me. The pastor comes up and he gives a sermon on the sins of the wrong kind of person being with the wrong kind of person at the wrong kind of time. And I've never hated this person before. Never hated this pastor, but I hate him now. And after church, my father tells me that the ministers want to meet in the back. Of course they do go back there and the pastor's sitting there two minions on either side and he gets right to the point. Bill, we've decided that this girl is going to go to the home of a white family. Deacon Vanderjack will make all the arrangements. And I get up to protest. My father puts his hand on my shoulder as this young lady has requested to stay in our home. She will remain welcome until such time as she sees fit to leave. Are you questioning my authority in the Lord Jesus Christ? If the shoe fits, we're leaving now. All right then. 
you're leaving. Pops, you know, um, you know we kicked out that church. You know you kicked out the church. That church we dedicated our lives to. Boy, what I always tell you, to do what the pastor said, to do what Jesus said do. And Jesus always listened to his father. So you listen to your father. Never, ever make a young girl believe you are going to do something you are not going to do. I can't even look at him in the eye. And the next day, Rebecca asked me if I love her. I tell him the truth. I don't know. And we both cry when I say it. Next day, she says that she wants to go stay with her sister. And I can't believe it's not the church, the parents, the forces that be that are keeping us apart. It's me. The Greyhound bus, it pulls off and she does not even look back and I sit there wishing, hoping to believe in something, to believe in anything enough to make this this pain. Somebody else's fault. Snap, we've got big news. Right now at snapjudgment.org, the Snap Judgment comedy video available nowhere else. And you might lust after the beautiful Snap Judgment pin. You can wear it to let people know that you snap. Snap Nation, all kinds of snap stuff, snapjudgment.org. And now, next up, the Snap Judgment Storyteller of the Year. That's right. Snap Judgment live from the Paramount. Stay true. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, live at the Paramount, already in progress. As this story does contain some adult situations, listener discretion is advised. He was born right down the street. So give some love, if you would, to your own Mr. Don Reed. Oakland. 
One of the main things about being homeless is you end up doing things you wouldn't normally do. I left the comfort of my grandmother's fairly nice white house with green trim, delicious soul food, cornbread infused meals, and a warm pillow to be the first person in my family to attend a major university. I was nervous waiting for that acceptance letter. I opened it cautiously and it started out, we are pleased. That's all I needed right there. Bad shit does not start with we are pleased. It starts with we regret. As in we regret to inform your ass that things are not gonna work out. I was excited, but it had a lot of pressure on my, my family saw me off with high hopes and big expectations. But I didn't have enough money, and I wasn't honest about that, but I knew they didn't have it, but I had to go, right? Things started off not so bad, 350 miles from home at UCLA. I was crashing in a different dorm room every night. But this one girl was on to me. She was on to me. She was like five foot. She was like four foot. She was hella short, okay? Hella short and hella nosy. So we walk around dorm parties with a drink going, hey Don, where do you live? Where do you live, Don? I said, uh, that's not important. No, I want to know. Because you know you don't live in this dorm. I checked the registry next door. I know you don't live over there. So where do you live, Don? I lied. I said, I live in uh, Hollywood with my brother's friend. And you know, sometimes I just, you know, crash over here. Oh, just crash over here. How convenient, Don. Where are you from originally, Don? I don't want to tell her Oakland because I know she's going to jam me up, right? So I said, uh, I'm from the uh, San Francisco Bay Area. Said, All right, Don. We even got busy a couple of times. You know, college students just doing it for the hell of it, but she bring that shit up as soon as we were done. She'd be like, ah, ah, ah. Where do you live, Don? Where do you live? <laughs> so I had to get away from her ass, right? So I got a great idea. Down the hill from the UCLA campus was this movie theater that played the same movie on a loop all day long. I could sneak in there, get a nap without anybody bothering me. I saw the Empire Strikes Back 37 times. <laughs> but they caught on to me. I had to do a lot of pretending, a lot of lying about where I was staying, but if I kept it moving around, nobody would know, right? And so I had to do more things I wouldn't normally do. Like hang out with my older brother's friend who moved down to LA. His name was P. P would often wear purple spandex t-shirts, tight, sleeveless, Jordache jeans, a purple bandana tied around his neck, and white cowboy boots with red stitching in them with his pants stuffed down in them. And I'd be dressed just like him, but in blue. And I had this ridiculously thick, thick, thick-ass mustache, and with these thick eyebrows, I looked like I had three mustaches. P did a lot of cocaine. Tons. He snorted it, but mostly, he smoked it. I spent hours feigning deep interest as P went through the detailed chemistry of cooking cocaine into rock formation so he, so we could smoke it. See, I had to do drugs even when I didn't want to. I had to do drugs just so I could have somewhere to be. And because he lived in this teeny one-bedroom apartment with his girlfriend, I could only crash there every once in a while. And so I say, I'm heading to my dorm room. But there was no dorm room. And so most of the time I just sat there and smoked cocaine until the numbing flow took hold, hoping through the cloud of smoke he would say, hey man, you just want to crash here? And I wanted to say, thank God, but faking it, I would say, I, I might as well, right? One night, 
I didn't even go to sleep. I went straight to class from Peace Place. I was already paranoid around the students who had money and parents who were doctors and lawyers. And now here I was sitting in class, high and self-conscious on a whole nother level as the professor went over Robert Frost poems. The Road Not Taken and Snow. How ironic, snow. I never know how I got bees on those interpretations, tired as I was, worried about whether, whether or not I was passing for normal. Did I smell? Could I not smell myself? Did they know I hadn't taken a shower? Sometimes two, three, sometimes four days? Because I was sneaking to the gym and take a shower, but I didn't have a gym class, so that wasn't guaranteed. And could they smell despair? Because my next question always was, how am I gonna eat today? And a lot of times I figured that out by going to this long row of vending machines on campus, hoping nobody saw me as I pretended to put money in, full frustration so I could check the coin returns, finding 35 cents, 50 cents, 75 cents elation, and the disappointment when I found nothing. And knowing I was going to have to steal somebody's book so I could sell it at the book buyback so I could eat. More stuff I wouldn't normally do. And so the line continued. Somehow I got a girlfriend and had to lie to her all the time. See, to not outstay my welcome at her place, I told her I lived at P's house, but that she shouldn't come over there. Too many drugs, too many wild people. But most of the time, I wasn't going to P's house. Most of the time, I wasn't going anywhere. Most of the time, I was riding the bus to the end of its route till three o'clock in the morning. And so I had to do more stuff I wouldn't normally do. And some of the stuff was just plain crazy. Looking for a job, I went through the classifieds and I found an excellent opportunity. Seeking male strippers for a Chippendales-like review. I weighed, the, I weighed like 11 pounds back then, but I was desperate. Come on down to the last call. Went over to Pete's house, I got ready. I put on my tightest stonewashed jeans, T-shirt, looked like a chicken bone with an Afro wig balanced on it. Not a good look. I was about to leave, Pete walked in. Hey man, where are you going? Um, I'm going to uh, uh, a job uh, interview um, to try out to be a male stripper. <laughs> to be a stripper and you're going the shit you got on right now? No, you need to take all that off. You know what, you know what not? Let's get you ready, let's get you ready, let's get you ready, okay? Okay, uh, first of all, women like leather. He pulled out a leather jacket and matching leather pants. He said, but before you put that on, you gotta put this on. He went in a drawer and he pulled out a purple shiny G-string. Now why he had a purple shiny G-string just readily available, I have no idea. But he flung that at me, I was like, ah. So all right, let's get your hair together. He slipped on some rubber gloves, hit some cream and he slapped it against my head. I'm like, it's burning, man, it's burning, it's burning. He said, it's supposed to burn, it's supposed to burn. What he was doing is he was transforming my hair into what is known as the Jerry Curl. If you're not familiar with the African-American hairstyling disaster that is the Jerry Curl, let me break it down for you, okay? When you're done with the hairstyle, when it's complete, if you don't look like you're sweating profusely, you didn't do it right. You need to look like that. And it requires a vast amount of conditioner and an immense amount of activator. Activator, sounds like something a superhero would have. Activator. And superheroes wear capes. And that's just about what you need to capture all the wet shit that's gonna be traveling down your back. He said, all right now. He grabbed a decanter of baby oil and he squoes it on me. Yes, I said squoes. He said, rub that up and down your body. The lady's gonna love it. The lady's gonna love it. 
I remember dripping, dripping with the hair stuff and the baby oil onto my socks and into the tight leather pants and the tight leather jacket. He said, go on down there, catch the bus. It was a hot, hot, hot ass day. When I got off the bus, I was squishing down the street. It was two o'clock in the day outside, inside the club, it was dark. 10 or 15 guys were standing around waiting to audition. This guy named Marco, the manager, took the stage. All right, glad you guys could be here. Welcome to the last call. Our goal was gonna put Chippendales out of business, okay? Now, normally this is a club where guys come to watch ladies dance. But now, Thursday nights only, only ladies that minute to watch you guys shake it up in a sexual manner. Well, the best of you anyway, You're gonna pick the very best, okay. Let's go over this list of names, okay? First of all, you don't want to use your regular name. You want to kind of create like a, a stage character, okay? So I'm just going to throw out some names and see if they stick, okay? Okay, first on the list here, I see we got uh, Mark. Uh, Mark, let's call you Thunder. This big, built black guy walked out on stage. Start dancing. He was amazing. Next on the list here, I see we got Timothy. Uh, Tim, let's call you Majestic. Another black guy with long Stevie Wonder braids with little colorful beads on the end. Had on a burnt orange suede like African loincloth, and he was doing stag jumps like. <laughs> he was a right. Next on the list here, I see we got a uh, Don Reed. Okay, Don, just throwing names out. Let's just try. Let's just practice with it. Okay, uh, ladies, put your hands together for Little Chocolate. Did he say little chocolate? I don't like that name at all. Gotta work on that name. Had to dance to two songs. First I danced to Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, then I stripped down to P's purple G-string and his white cowboy boots with the red stitching, I swear. And I danced to something like this. I was nervous and blinking. I was slipping in the emollients. And I left there mortified. And I left a trail like a snail up the street. Why was I going through all this? Can I get help from somebody, family, somebody? I already got help, and I couldn't get any more. So, I was doing it for the pride. I couldn't go home and tell everybody I didn't make it. They had such high hopes for me, I, I couldn't go home. And another thing about being homeless is you've got to stay up the latest so nobody knows where you're going. You got to get up the earliest so no one knows where you've been. So you never get good rest because wherever you are isn't home. The movie theater isn't home. The bus ride is not home. The bench by the library isn't home. The bathroom stall where you hide your feet so when security looks under it closing isn't home. And there's something else missing. A pillow. There's no pillow, but you're constantly trying to make one out of, a, out of a backpack or a jacket or your arm, and it's exhausting and it's humiliating. 
and that simply isn't home. So you keep on doing things you wouldn't normally do. I was looking for a place to live when I ran across this student on campus, a guy I'd been complaining to about money. Tall, blonde guy, attractive, likable. He explained everything to me, where I was supposed to go, how I was supposed to act, how much I was supposed to charge. He said, um, you know, there's this place you just go down there well-dressed and hang out. Eventually you'll be approached, you know, eventually, you know, things will just take their pace. I took my last $1.25 and I caught the bus down to this big art and design center, a place where older women went to meet young men. I seen American Gigolo and it seemed really cool. I mean, he had the cars and the money, everything. It was glamorized, but it was definitely pretty cool. But once I was standing there, looking through a window at a big full-length Persian rug, once that older brunette woman in the red suit approached me, once she made eye contact, once she nodded for me to follow her, once I realized that I was about to sell myself, it, uh, it didn't feel so cool. It didn't feel cool at all. The blonde guy told me, never mention money, call it a gift. I had, I had sex with her right there in the car. Afterward, I said, uh, can I have something, uh, you know, a gift, anything? She said, if I do, then I did, and then that's who I am. Instead of, we just had a good time, you know? She dropped me off at the bus stop. I had no money, and so I walked five miles to P's place, past the dirty bars and diners, past the X-rated movie theaters, past the professional street walkers and hustlers with holes in my shoes. I had holes in my shoes, I did. A few days later, I got word that I was hired to work as a waiter at a hotel in exchange for free room and board, free room and board. I got offered that gig as a stripper, but I did not call their asses back. <laughs> Walking in that room the first time, huge weight off my shoulders. It was small. It was not a nice white house with green trim. It was dark, kind of scroungy, but it was mine. I saw something there, hadn't seen it in a while. A pillow, my pillow. That night, I got some of the best rests I had in a long time. On campus, I saw, where do you live, Don? I got a place. I went back to class and I sat there different. I could stop lying. I wasn't hungry or self-conscious. I didn't smell. I didn't have to check the vending machines for change anymore. And I could hang out with people if I wanted to, not because I had to. And I could tell, I was pretty sure I wasn't going to have to do anything else. I wouldn't normally do.
Dom Reed. Dom Reed. Snapchat's for Storyteller of the Year. It's Don Reed. Changing the world, one story at a time. See Don Reed's performance, this one, in brilliant Technicolor, snapjudgment.org. Let people know, you swing Snap by wearing the stylish, yet classy Snap Judgment pin, the Snap Judgment ringtone, or extra Snap stuff, including the Jen Cover comedy special never before broadcast, all of it available right now at snapjudgment.org. Now, right after this break, the queen of Snap Judgment storytelling, Oakland's own Joyce Lee, she returns to our stage in just a moment. Snap Judgment, live from the Paramount. Stay tuned. From WNYC Studios, welcome back to Snap Judgment live from the Paramount. And your calls and your letters, I get it. It's been far too long. The wait is over. Snap Judgment. Live. Yes. Now then, I get to introduce next to the Snap Judgment stage the queen of Snap storytelling. Please give her some love, Miss Joyce Lee. was a very sweet boy I knew in junior high. I had purposely blocked out a lot of junior high, but I remember Floyd because Floyd was the very first boy who I knew for a fact was head over heels in love with me. I could always tell where Floyd sat because I Love Joyce was carved into each one of his desks. And every time I looked up, I'd catch him staring at me. I never knew how I felt about Floyd though. I just knew he loved me and it felt good to be loved. One time, Floyd and the class clown Gerald got into an argument in front of the entire class and Gerald blurted out, well, if you're so big and bad, why don't you tell Joyce you love her? You done carved her name on everything except your forehead. The entire class laughed and I looked at Floyd and even though I couldn't see his eyes through his thick Coke bottle glasses and through my thick Coke bottle glasses. I could see his shyness as he lowered his head and said nothing. When I got home, my mother was in the kitchen preparing dinner. I rushed to her without even taking off my backpack to tell her everything about Floyd in excitement. How Floyd loved me. How everyone knew. How good it felt to be loved. How shy Floyd was when Gerald exposed him and how I saw Floyd's Love and shyness as an opportunity to ask Floyd to the junior high winter formal dance. Wait, 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 wait. What you say you gonna do? Say what you gonna do again. Say what you said. I knew I said something wrong, but I had no idea what it was. Run it by me again. Say what you gonna do. I'm going to ask Floyd. You ain't gonna ask no man but Jesus for nothing. (laughs) You are the gift. You stay wrapped in beauty and say nothing. You do not choose boys. Boys choose you. Do you understand? I trusted my mother's advice, I'll tell you why. My mother was always the most beautiful mother in the room, always. When I was in sixth grade, there was this fine-ass teacher named Mr. Randall who only had eyes for my mother. Mr. Randall was the funnest, most handsomest, most sweetest teacher in all of Oakland. All my friends and they mama had a crush on Mr. Randall. But every time he saw me, he'd say, and how's your mama doing? One time, Mr. Randall asked that question on a hot day, And I told him that my mother had taken the day off work. And Mr. Randall's eyes lit up. And he turned to the class and he said, Lord, it's hot. Who wants ice cream? The entire class cheered and Mr. Randall 
took us around the corner to the store by my house to buy the whole class ice cream. On the way back, he turns to me and he says, so you want to go inside and check on your mama? I went inside and told my mother that Mr. Randall and the whole class was outside and he had bought us all ice cream. So my mother, of course, came outside and said, hello to Mr. Randall. And he, of course, said, hello. To my mother while turning a bright red, but nothing ever happened between Mr. Randall and my mother because even though my mother is gorgeous, wrapped with an afro on top, Mr. Randall never asked her out. But James did. James was my mother's boyfriend. In the beginning, James showered my mother with compliments of her beauty. He bought her diamonds and furs and Mercedes Benzes and a house and took us all on vacation while becoming more particular about the goings and comings of my sisters and me. And his, his, his criticism started mixing more in with his compliments, but we were all very financially well kept with James, so my mother gave him more say. And then more say. Until it became a law that my sisters and I couldn't do anything or go anywhere that James didn't approve of. And with even more time, neither could my mother. James was always involved in listening to every conversation in the house, usually from another room, so he heard me telling my mother about Floyd. Yeah, 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 see, now, don't be stupid now. See, you the gift, you know? You ain't desperate and ugly like some of them friends of yours you bring around here. Now, what's that girl's name you brought around here yesterday? Now, see, she gonna have to beg a man for attention. You ain't got them type of problems. You talk too much. Men don't like that. But you're still pretty enough to choose. Men choose you. I became so excited at the idea that of all the beautiful girls at school, someone would think I was special enough to choose me. I fantasized daily that a sweet and shy boy of my dreams who had the psychic ability to know that I had a crush on him would be so overwhelmed at the gift of my beauty and my specialness that he would make a huge scene in front of the entire school just to ask me out. You know, nobody really ever asked me out in high school. I was this sassy, do-good, tomboy, church girl thespian who loved the blues. So I waited, and I waited. Freshman year, nothing. Sophomore year, I had the hugest crush on my best friend, Tyler. But that joker chose everybody but me. He didn't know I was alive. By the time somebody actually did choose me, I was so happy just to be chosen, I said yes to every single guy who asked. First, there was Jayton, who took me out on a romantic date, but then demanded that I buy all of his school lunches since we were together. Then there was Fred, who told me how beautiful I was in private, but how he had a whole other girlfriend he'd rather show off in public. Then there was Jace, who I really, I never saw him. He was always fighting and getting suspended, and I wanted somebody I could show off his scope. But still, they all thought I was special enough just to choose me. And this is how I dated. Man after man, year after year, yes after yes, until I was around 25. I knew I was dating all the wrong guys, but I, I didn't know why, until I went home to visit my mother. She hadn't been feeling well. So she and I went to the doctor to get a checkup, and, and James met us at the hospital, and he seemed concerned, but he kept going over business with my mother and things that he wanted her to do, and he kept telling and talking and telling and talking. And all of a sudden, at the ripe age of 46, my mother had a stroke. When the nurse came to tell me, I honestly thought she was mistaken until she took me just a few steps behind a, a door where I saw a bunch of people in blue working vigorously on my mother. She looked so helpless and there were tubes coming out of her from everywhere. And James, 
I saw James standing over her. Yeah, yeah, give me this jewelry now. Take it off and give it to me. I don't spend too much money to have the people in here stealing it. I thought I was in a nightmare until the nursery addressed me. Ma'am, we're gonna keep your mother with us for a few days. How about you go home and pick her up a few things? I could literally feel the room spinning and my legs felt like two sinking ships. I exited the room. I didn't feel my feet dragging down the hospital hallways. I didn't notice the people waiting in the waiting room. I, I didn't even notice the sliding exit doors. I wouldn't have even noticed what time of day it was had it not been so hot. It was like the sun kind of jolted me back to more of a reality. And I just took a deep breath, dug in my purse to get the car keys, only to hear, Girl, you fine, girl, you fine as frogs here. Come over here, let me holler at you for a minute. I was annoyed and offended and afraid. But I smiled, said thank you, got in the car. And on the drive to my mother's house and back to the hospital, everything started going through my head, every conversation, every moment, every month, every week, every year. I had so many questions and I was just trying to figure out why my mother was in the hospital bed. What landed her in that hospital bed? Why a woman so strong and resilient wouldn't tell James to shut up about the jewelry? And why? Seriously, Oakland, why? Why would that fool in the parking lot think that any woman coming fresh out of a hospital is in the mood to be catcalled? Why did I smile and say thank you? Why do women like us encourage all of this foolishness? And I just, I just started feeling completely fed up. I returned to the hospital in a worried march only to see James on his way out. Wait, you're not even gonna stay an hour? Oh, I got some things I need to take care of, but you know, uh. It's a good thing your mama has you here. I'll be back. I sat next to my mother, staring at her IV, making myself comfortable in the chair that was gonna be my bed for the next four days. James never returned to the hospital that day. And the beeping sound of my mother's heart monitor was the only sound in the room. And time. It didn't exist anymore. And I just sat there, staring at this amazing woman who had taught me everything she knew, who, who know me longer than anybody. And I held my mother's hand and I said, Mama, do you want to die this way? Waiting, waiting for this man to be everything you know you deserve. Everything you know you've always really wanted. Waiting for him to really choose you. I'd never spoken to my mother like we were just two women before, so I expected her to get upset and scream at me and put me in a child's place, but she, she just stared at the ceiling while a single tear rolled down the side of her face. She didn't say a thing. And I just kept thinking and adding and processing and I said the only other thing that made sense to me in that moment. I said, Mama, you should have let me ask Floyd to the junior high winter formal. I'm so serious, mama. You should have asked out Mr. Randall and you should have let me ask Floyd out. Mr. Randall's fine ass would be here. Floyd would be here with his thick Coke bottle glasses and all. 
And she laughed so hard I couldn't help but to laugh with her. It took some time, but as soon as my mother healed, she, she left James. And she dated several other versions of disaster since. I can't even tell you how many disasters this woman has dated. I paid, hi mama. You know what I'm saying? I was saying we all make mistakes. Also since, my mother has been a hero and an example to me about the power of choice. Because ever since that day, I've watched you always choose yourself first. Choice lead. Choice leader. My mama's right here. The amazing Joyce Lee. Snap Judgment Live. If you dug it, you can see this performance. You can see Joyce's beautiful mother for yourself right now at snapjudgment.org. And what's more, the Snap Judgment Jen Cobra comedy special includes a secret story never before broadcast that will leave you in stitches. Experience it all right now. Snap Nation. Snap Judgment. Another Please remember, the band Bells Atlas produced and performed in real time every single piece of music you heard on this show. And yes, they have a new album out. BellsAtlas.com. They're made of magic and fire in Oakland. Big love to the beautiful Paramount Theater in downtown Oakland, California. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Massini-Miller engineered this show. And if Snap Live is coming to your town, remember, please get tickets with a quickness. I can't be held responsible because someone already got your seat. I'm sure they're going to have a great time where you're stuck at home. But if you can't be there, remember, if you need more, and of course you do need more, you can get the Snap Judgment Live Comedy Hour with an all-new, secret, never-before-broadcast Jen Cobra story available right this minute at Snap Nation. SnapJudgment.org. Because even though this is not the news, this is WNYC.